Psalm 131 and 132. I thought at one time we were going to get all the way through the Psalms of Ascent, but I knew I'd get started a little bit late today, and then all of a sudden my notes filled up, and uh, we're not going to get there, which is fine. We're going to go as fast as we want to go. You know, we're not in any hurry to finish this thing. There's no deadline date at the end. Uh, We'll finish when we finish. And uh, the problem is when we get finished with the Psalms, I'll want to start back over again, but we'll probably keep on going to something else. But real quickly, Psalm 131. Three verses. Three verses. And the tendency for me, maybe you, is, oh, well, it's just three verses. It's not very important. It's just a little piece. You know, Psalm 119 was 176 verses, right? But these three verses, they're pretty good. In his introduction to Psalm 131, James Boyce wrote this about the three verses, you know, this short little psalm. He said, it is one of the easiest psalms to read, but its lesson is one of the hardest to learn. And on a similar note, Spurgeon wrote this. There are also steps in this song of degrees. It is a short ladder, if we count the words, but yet it rises to a great height and reaches from deep humility to a fixed confidence. So let's not look over these three little verses. Now we are still in the Psalm of Ascents. Uh, That goes through Psalm 134. And this was another psalm that was penned by David. The message of this psalm is about a humble trust in God. That is, after the Psalm 130s, the topic of God, uh, uh, I mean, this is after Psalm 130, which the topic was God was to offer forgiveness by grace apart from human works. This shows a natural progression of thought. If I perhaps should say because of God's offer of grace is not based on any human merit, which we get from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and other passages, it follows that all we can do is have a humble trust in God. And that's what we see here. In verse 1 it says, My heart is not lifted up. In verse 1, it says, my eyes are not raised too high. And then in verse 1, it says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. So what's this psalm say? It says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope is in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When you look at who the writer was, which was David, it's remarkable to think that he was not overtaken by his own pride. I mean... Remember early in his public life, the women were singing to one another, Psalm and Samuel 18:7. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. 
Well, that would kind of pump you up a little bit, don't you think? Yeah, hey, look at that. I struck down ten, my ten thousands. I mean, that, that's the tendency of man. And we know it was a bummer to Saul because the next verse says, and Saul was very angry. Why? Because they said, you struck down your thousands? That's pretty good, isn't it? Like better than anybody else in the land. But he was second best, right? And it says he was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David <coughs> ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? It's easy to have your pride lifted up when people praise you. And today, pride, today, pride is considered a virtue. It's something to be pursued. Um, I think about people that are very well-known theologians. Probably the most well-known that we have today is probably John MacArthur. If you want to pray for John MacArthur, I don't know him. I've never met him. Pray that he not get lifted up. Because that's a temptation that he's got to be faced with that we can't understand. I don't think he is, but that's a constant battle we all face. And thinking about pride being considered a virtue and something to be pursued, I looked up the difference between self-esteem and pride. What's the difference between self-esteem and pride? I found this. Quote, Pride and self-esteem are two traits that are often interconnected. Pride can be defined as the pleasure or satisfaction taken in an achievement, possession, or association. Self-esteem is confidence and satisfaction in oneself. That's the key difference between pride and self-esteem. But these two concepts are often interlinked since one will always be proud of himself and his achievements if he has a high esteem. And that's the quote from this, you know, it's very interesting. And, you know, they're there. And boy, how many books are there on self-esteem? Well, what, not called pride. Well, yeah, it kind of is. And scriptures are very clear of what God thinks of pride. Mark 7.20, and Jesus said in Mark 7.20, he puts pride in with the list of things that defile a man. In verse 20, he said this, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And this is Jesus talking. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. He puts them all in the same bucket. And then he said in verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Boyce wrote this. He said, learning to subdue pride is one of the most important lessons of all lessons in Christian character. 
since pride is the most serious and pervasive of all vices. In 1 Peter 5, 5, the last half of that verse, we read this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. And here we have in Psalm 131, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. And this is from David, who had every worldly right to be proud. He killed Goliath. He had slayed ten thousands. He did all kinds of stuff. He's the most most uh, revered king in Israel's history, by far. No one else comes close. And then, in, after we said, "My eyes are not lifted up," he says, "My not, my eyes are not raised too high." My eyes are not raised too high. Raising our high eyes high is arrogance. Which goes right along with pride. It's different, but it's very very much related. Arrogance takes pride a step further. In that the arrogant, what do they do? They look down on others. Well, look at you down there. I'm up here. One definition states that arrogance is, quote, this comes from Webster, an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner. It was critical for David, and it is critical for us, that we do not get our eyes raised too high. I think back to Nathan's meeting to confront David with his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah that was found in 2 Samuel 12. When confronted, David responded in humility, saying, quote, I have sinned against the Lord. We need to be humble before the Lord at all times, understanding our weaknesses and, yes, even our sin. We tend to call them weaknesses. Sounds better. But our sin. And it's hard to do. If we think that's easy to do, it's not. It's hard to do. But we need to do it. It's what we were instructed to do, as we just read in 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So don't be proud and don't be arrogant. And then the next thing we see from David in verse 1, excuse me, is I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. Looking back at the life of David, contentment is something that he possessed. He was content. Samuel had anointed him as the next king of Israel, but he didn't go out and pursue the throne. He let it come to him when God deemed the time was right. He had multiple opportunities to kill Saul. One time he cut off, cut the hem of his garment. But he refused to do so. The narrative of one of these events is found in 1 Samuel 26. There in verse 11, David said, The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
But take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. He could have killed him right there. But he was content to let God work when God would work. Now, today, very sadly, a lot of false teachers, and I've heard this more than once, in the NAR seeker-sensitive movement, jerk Second, uh, 1 Samuel 26 way out of context and claim that anyone who criticizes them or their teachings is, quote, touching God's anointed. Now, they call themselves God's anointed. Samuel didn't anoint any of them. So they claim to be the anointed one. So this is a, that's a gross and false application of the text. Saul was anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. David said, I'm not, that's, that, that's for God to do. I'm anointed too, but I'm not going to go and, and push fate or push, push what's going to happen. He was content until God did what God was going to do in raising him to be king. Back to the thought of contentment. You know, this is some, something that some of us fight more than others. Some of us, it, it comes much easier than others. One commentator wrote this. He said, It is difficult to recognize unruly ambition as a sin because it has a kind of superficial relationship to the virtue of aspiration. We need to make sure of our motivation. Is it so I can gain great and marvelous things for me? Is that my motivation? That's a very familiar pursuit in the business world. I lived in that world for decades. And I can go story after story after story of how people have that. That's their motivation. The believer's aspiration needs to be centered in his or her walk with God. And that God is glorified in his or her life. And this type of, of, of goal is countercultural to the world we live in. Paul spoke to this in Philippians 1.21 where he says, For me to live is Christ and die is gain. In verse 2, David said, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child my soul with, is my soul within me. It's a great picture and one that all of us would desire for ourselves. A calm and quieted soul. It's the opposite of pride and ambition. It's the opposite of arrogance. A quiet and calm soul. You know, pride and ambition are never satisfied. They're never satisfied. They always want more. And again, we could cite thousands of examples of always more, always more, always more. Why? Because no matter how much pride I have, I want more. No matter how high I've climbed or how much I have, I want more. It's a basic truism. Wherever you look, and true regardless of how much a person may possess. I remember a story at work of one of the guys that was on the board of the company. And the company was making bucket loads of money. And this guy was in his 
mid to high 80s. And he was sitting there, guys, we've got to get more. Keep going, keep going, got to get more. What? You know, that was his sole focus. And that is everywhere. It's everything, anything but a calm and quieted soul. So David is stating here that like a weaning is necessary for a child to mature. The maturity that came in his life was from learning to not lift up his heart, not raising his eyes too high, or not occupying himself with things too great and too marvelous for him. Now it indicates here by saying that, that there may be times where him learning this was difficult. There's going to be times where us learning this is going to be difficult. But the end result is a quieted soul that comes from the Lord. And then in verse 3, there's a fitting conclusion. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And we can apply that to ourselves as well. O believer, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So that real quickly is those three verses. Let's read them again. O Lord, is my heart. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And a lot of stuff in those little three verses. But we're going to go forward to Psalm 132. Psalm 132, again, is another psalm of ascent. We don't know who wrote it. And this is the longest of the psalm of ascent, psalms of ascent. It's 18 verses long. And it tells about the bringing of <coughs> or the ascent of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The beginning half of the psalm, which is verse 1 to 9, is about David's oath or promise to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And in the later half, or the latter half, verses 10 to 18, it talks about God's oath to David, where he has promised an everlasting throne. The second half repeats the ideas of the first half, but we see that God will do incredible things which are greater than the people asked or even expected. It's similar to Ephesians 3.20. I don't know if you've looked at Ephesians 2.20 recently, but it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Just go home and read that about 15 times this afternoon. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now for your information, Psalm 132 was quoted a couple times or parts of it in the New Testament at very interesting times. In Acts 7.46, Stephen, in the sermon he preached right before he was stoned, referred to Psalm 130, verse 5. And Peter, in his address in Acts 2, verse 30, which is the the address he made at Pentecost, 
refers to Psalm 130.11. Those people knew their scripture. <laughs> and they could go back and go, yeah, that's this, that's this piece. Now some commentators think this is a Psalm of Solomon. But we can't be certain. And it really doesn't matter. So, so the first few verses... The first seven verses speak to the desire of David to find a house for God in the ark. Verse 1 says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house nor get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So this is the vow that David made to the Lord. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And after receiving an initial go-ahead, because he went to Nathan and said, Can I build a house to the Lord? And Nathan said, Go for it. God appeared to Nathan, or told, told Nathan to go back to David and tell him, uh, No, you can't. And there in verse 12, God told David, he says, when your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's when David was told no. Now that did not keep David from working to build the throne. He went and gathered ingredients incredible storehouse of ingredients to build the house of the Lord you can read about that in first Chronicles chapter 22 and it was substantial what he what he gathered to get ready for the building of the house of God now verse 1 and Psalm 132 mentions the hardships that David endured it says remember O Lord in David's favor all the hardships he endured now, you think about all the hardships that David endured, and he was by far Israel's greatest king. But I looked at one commentary, and, and they, they had this whole list of hardships, and I just took some of them here, because there's a lot of them. But it's good to just focus on them for just a minute. David was despised and criticized by his family. Read the story of Goliath. His brothers thought he was an idiot for even coming up there and doing what he did. He had multiple life and death struggles. He was attacked by many of his constituents. He lived many years as a fugitive. He experienced a significant season of backsliding and suffering due to his sin. He faced many enemies and battles through many wars. And once he even feigned insanity. To protect his life. He was openly criticized and despised by his wife. I mean openly. When he was dancing in front of the ark. When they were bringing the ark up. He endured great conflict and problems among his own children. He had a son kill another son. And then that son started a coup to take over the throne. And he did take over the throne for a little while until he was killed. And that was followed by a civil war. I don't know. I wouldn't want to sign up for any of those. 
right? But David had to endure those. But through every hardship, through every hardship, David's heart remained true to the Lord. He was called a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And David was focused on finding a place for the Lord. Through all those hardships, he was focused on finding a place for the Lord. Verse 3 sums it up of Psalm 132. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So we see David's heart here. Now these are figurative speeches. We know he was going to sleep. We, you know, but uh, David was not intending nor was he capable of foregoing sleep until a place for the Lord was completed. But we can see the driving force of his life. This was, this was right up there. This is my number one goal. And not one that he would later abandon. He didn't say that when he was oh, you know, trying to make a point and then go on and live however he wanted to live. This was remaining a driving focus in his life. Now a critical, a critical aspect of this whole desire is the why. Why did he desire this so much? It's because he wanted to honor God. It wasn't so he could get you know, extra credit points with God or anything like that. He wanted to honor God. It was a driving force. And that dri- you know, the driving force to honor God and the desire to build a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob was not the only way that David showed he wanted to honor God. There's other ways we can see in his life. If you recall 1 Samuel 17, here David stood against the giant Goliath. And we've all heard the stories. And we went through it, I don't know, probably a year ago now. It's been a long time ago when when we went through that. There was no one else in all the army, including King Saul, who wanted to do this. Now, King Saul, we got to remember, he was described in 2 Samuel 9-2 as, quote, a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul was not a wimp. Okay? He killed his thousands. Because he was a powerful guy. He was a strong guy. But back to David's confrontation with Goliath. In 1 Samuel seventeen twenty six. David was asking about Goliath when he went to the camp to take food to his brothers. He was asking about Goliath and he said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What was at stake? God was being dishonored. And that bothered David. And then a few verses later he said to Goliath when the two went to battle. He said this, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philippines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What was at stake? The honor of God. And that's what motivated David. Was David willing to fight for the Lord's honor? Absolutely. Is Is there a higher calling? It gets us to ask the question of ourselves. What do I think of the Lord's honor? How important is it to me? And how does that tie in with my actions? We could go down hundreds of rabbit holes here. On how the honor of God is minimized today. And I'm not talking about how non-believers minimize God. That's, that's simple stuff. They hate Him. But how believers dishonor God. Maybe the first question is to ask why. Why do believers dishonor the Lord? And we could talk about this for some time. And again, go down lots of rabbit holes. But I got to think, and maybe if you disagree, let me know. I got to think part of the problem is that we think too highly of ourselves and too lowly of God. How do we counter it? By reading and by studying God's word a lot. Not just, oh, I read seven verses a day, I'm good. And let the Spirit of God work in our hearts and our minds and let us see how awesome and how great and how powerful God is. And as we do that, our desire to have God honored would be raised up. And that's what we need to have for this body of believers here. That God be honored. And we can learn from David's example to honor God. Then we go on in verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. And we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord. Go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed in righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. So as we complete these verses, verses 6 and 7 review how the ark was treated historically. Now remember, its size, the the Ark of the Covenant was about three and three quarters feet long and two and a quarter feet tall and a two and a quarter feet wide. It It wasn't huge. It contained the Ten Commandments. That was in there. It contained a bowl of manna that God had preserved. And it contained Aaron's rod that budded. That's it. That's all that was there. And it symbolized God's presence. And after the nation entered the promised land, it had been kept in places like Shiloh and Bethel 
in Mizpah and Kariah Jarim. And he was in Kariah Jarim for 20 years. Barnes' commentary says of verse 6, <coughs> the ark or the place of habitation for the Lord last mentioned at Ephrathah, that is at Shiloh, in the tribe of Ephraim, where they were told it had been, but it was gone. They found it at last in the fields of the wood, that is, Kerjath-Jerim, which signifies the city of woods. Thence all Israel fetched it in the beginning of David's reign. So it wasn't even being honored. And that's one reason David wanted to bring that and honor that as well. And we read about what he just said there in 1 Chronicles 13. But going on, verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will sit on your throne. And this again, this is where God is telling what he is going to do, starting in verse 9 or 10. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, then I shall teach them, and their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints with shout for joy, will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So verse 10 starts this transition of seeing what God will do. It's the fulfillment of God's oath to David, or the Davidic covenant. The, the original covenant is found in 2 Samuel 7, verses 4 to 17. And here in that covenant, we are told this. God will establish his people in their land. He will give David an heir who will be blessed. David's successor will build a house to the Lord. His successor will be disciplined, but not forgotten. David's throne will be forever. Of course, that's through the Messiah. We can see in this promise that the Messiah is being spoken about that David's throne will last forever. Well, the only way that can happen is through the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and 14 show the answer to the prayers of verses 8 and 9. In verse 8, the people asked that God would go to his resting place. And in verse 13, we read that the Lord chose Zion as his resting place forever. Verse 9, ask that the priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. And then in verse 16, we see that they are clothed in salvation and the saints shout for joy. Now, I don't think we can imagine, I know I can't, how joyous our shouts will be in heaven. Revelation 19 gives us just a little peek. It says, after this I heard what seems to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then in verse 6, it says, Then I heard 
what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder. Now just picture that. The roar of many waters and the sounds of peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord the for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's going to be, you know, if we had a body like this, the hair would stand up on the back of our neck. The last verses of Psalm 132 contain the promise of God, or of, of a word with a world with God's blessing. <coughs> this is the world that throughout history mankind has tempted to make for himself. I mean, we've tried to make a world that would be honorable and fun, and uh, not fun, um, with perfect peace and perfect harmony. But man can't do it. Without God at the center, without the kingdom being controlled by the Messiah, it cannot ever be achieved. No matter how many times you have a Miss Universe pageant and they want world peace. It can't happen without God at the center and a kingdom controlled by the Messiah. What is instead what man's been able to accomplish? Well, I think we're pretty good at wars and strife. That's the result of man's attempt at peace. You know, in Isaiah, Isaiah 9 speaks to this. In this section of scripture that was beautifully put to words by what I would arguably call the best song ever written. For the Lord, the God omnipotent, reigneth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then he says that again and again. Hallelujah chorus. King of kings forever and ever. Lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever. Interesting, the people that sing that song have no clue what they're singing. But this is what we are going to experience, as it says you know, in Isaiah and in Revelation 19. King of kings forever. The only way to listen to that, by the way, is to turn it up so it almost hurts your ears. Yeah. Hallelujah. And he will reign forever and ever. And that's what we have in the end of Psalm 132. Her priest I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. That real quickly is Psalm 132. Let's pray.